read from God's word concerning the seventh commandment. We're going to begin in Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, and then Exodus chapter 20, verse 14, which is the commandment itself, and then Deuteronomy 22, 22. Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 through 28, and we will conclude with Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 through 32. This is God's holy, inerrant, and infallible word. Please give it your full attention. Genesis chapter 2, in verse 24. Therefore... A man shall leave his father and his mother, and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Now turn over to Exodus chapter 20, verse 14. Very short commandment. You shall not commit adultery. Now turn to Deuteronomy 22, 22. <clears throat> Spounding upon the seventh commandment, this verse reads, If a man is found living or lying with the wife of another man, both of them shall die the man who lay with the woman and the woman, so shall you purge the evil from Israel. Now turn to Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 through 28. Actually, let's go ahead and read through 29. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And now let's turn to Ephesians chapter 5. Beginning in verse 22. Paul writes, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and, and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. 
Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that, it, that she respects her husband. Thus far, God's holy word. You may be seated. And let us go to God in prayer. Heavenly Father, we again thank you for your word to us, and we thank you for your holy law, which tells us how we can please you. It tells us about who you are and how we ought to live. And we pray, Lord, that uh, you will help us by this commandment to see uh, what type of God you are, that you are a faithful God, that you might help us to see who we are, uh, that you might help us to see that we have broken your law, and that we need Christ. Help us to, to understand what it means to be in a covenant relationship. Not only with our husband or our wife, but also in a covenant relationship with you, our God. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The word... Sex, unfortunately, is a bad word in many Christians' minds. Too many times Christians are not taught the biblical truths about sex. They're simply told it is a forbidden thing. But the Bible tells us that sex is a wonderful thing created by God to promote love, pleasure, and procreation within the marriage relationship. That is what Christians need to be taught about sex. But if we fail to teach our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ about sex, trust me, our culture will not hesitate one moment to teach them otherwise. Today we live in a sexually driven culture. If you've heard it once, You've heard it a thousand times. Sex sells. It's impossible to live in the culture that we live in today and not see things that are sexual in nature. Billboards, movies, TV shows, commercials, the internet, and the list goes on and on and on. In fact, just this last week, Monty Cruz and I saw a news clip about the rise in popularity among weather girls around the world. And they were not becoming popular because of the weather, but because of what they wear or what they fail to wear, how little they wear. Our culture is a sexually driven culture. It is a sexually driven culture that has become so perverse that it is fighting for holy matrimony to be practiced between two men or two women. What an oxymoron. It is so perverse that people have become confused about what their own gender is. When you think about all of these things, it can become very easy to begin to think of sex as a bad word or a bad thing. But although 
it can be turned into an evil practice, we must remember that sex was created by God to be a beautiful thing for a man and a woman who have made vows to one another in a marriage covenant. Genesis chapter 2 verse 24 speaks to the institution of the marriage covenant and says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. The joining together of flesh in a sexual manner was meant to be enjoyed between a man and a woman within the marriage relationship. This set of catechism question and answers that we are looking at tonight addresses how to keep the sexual relationship in the marriage covenant pure. This commandment, the seventh commandment, may also speak more about the relationship between God and his people more so than any other of the commandments, simply because this commandment focuses on covenant relationships. The marriage covenant was created by God for the ultimate purpose of picturing and pointing forward to the covenant made between Christ and his bride, the church. But before we turn there, let us begin with the basics of the seventh commandment. This commandment, a very short commandment, forbids adultery. The word adultery, na'af in Hebrew, is defined as a man or woman having sexual intercourse with someone outside of the marriage relationship. Now this command, of course, can be broken in different ways. Two single people can break this commandment by joining together. And this is often spoken of as fornication in the Bible rather than adultery, but is nevertheless forbidden. Even more serious than fornication is when the marriage vows are broken by having sexual relations. In other words, when a married person has sexual relations with someone other than their spouse. And the reason this is a much greater violation of the law is because they destroy their own or someone else's marital covenant vows. The marriage covenant is an institution created by God from the beginning of creation. It is very important in our understanding of the gospel. It was from the very beginning to point forward to the gospel. And so God instituted it from the very beginning. And that is why it is often referred to as a creational commandment. It was instituted in that Genesis 2.24 passage that I read earlier, referring to the man and the woman joining together in one flesh. And no one is to come between that union. Which is why Jesus says in Matthew 19.6, What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. Now Jesus, I think, is referring to anything that may separate a married couple, but I think especially referring to committing adultery. There is to be no sexual relations outside of the marriage unit. However, adultery is not just limited to sexual intercourse 
We set the limits of this commandment too narrow if we restrict it to just that. Jesus reveals the depth of this commandment in Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 and 28. He says, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Once again, Jesus shows us that sin actually resides first in the heart. For even desiring someone outside of our spouse in a sexual way is adultery. And so it is not just the act that is sinful, but it is also the thought. Which means that we must guard ourselves carefully against the breaking of this commandment, especially in a culture that is so sexually driven. Jesus spoke about guarding ourselves in this temptation just after he warned us about the sin of lust there in that Matthew 5 passage. That's why I added it as a verse as we were reading through it earlier in the service. See, Jesus says, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And this might make some of us a little uneasy because of our tendency to lust. And it should, to some degree, I think, make us a little uneasy. But Jesus is not saying to literally cut out your own eye. He's using hyperbole. He is using exaggerated speech to get you to understand the urgency of your need to guard yourself with respect to the sin. The catechism answer to question 71 says, The seventh commandment requireth the preservation of our own and our neighbor's chastity in heart, speech, and behavior. So not only are we not to commit the acts of adultery, but we are to preserve ourselves with regard to our chastity, that is, with regard to our sexual purity. We must preserve or guard against this sin. And we must do so, as the catechism answer suggests, in heart, speech, and behavior. With regard to our hearts, Jesus says we have committed adultery in our heart if we lust. With regard to our speech, Ephesians 5, 4 says, Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. And with regard to behavior, 1 Thessalonians 4, 3 says, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. It's difficult to guard ourselves from this sin and preserve our chastity in a culture such as ours. Yet that is precisely what we must do. It is what Christ commands us to do. And not only are we to guard our own chastity or sexual purity, but we are to guard our neighbors as well. Which begins by making sure that we ourselves are modest in how we present ourselves to others. 
whether it be with respect to our speech or our action, as we mentioned above, or even with how we present ourselves with respect to our own dress. Are we adorning ourselves to draw attention to our own bodies in a manner that would cause others to stumble? Or are we adorning ourselves as those who worship God, as 1 Timothy 2.9 points out? It is difficult to guard ourselves and our neighbors against sexual impurity. So how do we do it? Well, that is ultimately for each person and family to resolve. For some, it may require doing away with cable TV. For some, it may mean purchasing an internet security system of some sort. For some, it may mean not going to certain places where they could stumble in this sin. For some, it may mean not dating as our culture views dating. These things must be answered by the family and the individual as they read God's word and pray for his wisdom. You see, I cannot tell you from the pulpit how to handle all of these situations because the church is not in the business of placing commands upon you that the Bible has not. This only leads, of course, to legalism. But what the Bible clearly teaches is that we are to guard ourselves and you must seek wisdom from above on how to do that for yourself. But what is absolutely needed in these situations, what we all must do with regard to this sin, is go to the Lord in prayer. I understand that many Christians today really struggle with this sin. Many are addicted to pornography or struggle with sexual appropriateness with their boyfriend or girlfriend. There are many in the church today who struggle with attraction to the same sex. And the first place we need to begin is on our knees before the throne of God, pleading with him to give us strength by his spirit to resist these temptations. We need to confess our struggles to other Christians that can hold us accountable. And we need to be in God's word. On our own, we cannot overcome these temptations. But in Christ, there is hope. And this commandment ultimately leads us to him. See, not only because we break this commandment and need his forgiveness, just as we break all of the commandments, but also because, as mentioned already, this commandment perhaps speaks more about the relationship between God and his people more than any of the others. This commandment is about honoring a covenant, the marriage covenant which ultimately points us to the relationship between Christ and his bride, the church. In the book of Ephesians, Paul speaks much about the marriage covenant and quotes actually from that Genesis 2.24 passage where God institutes the marriage covenant. Listen to what he says. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. 
Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. But we, because we are members of his body, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. As we read this passage, what becomes obvious to us is that the role of the wife is to resemble the church. And the role of the husband is to resemble Christ. And if that explanation were not enough, Paul then explicitly states that the marriage institution is a type of Christ and his relationship to the church. You see, when a marriage is treated biblically, it is a portrait of God's relationship with his people. It is a portrait of the gospel because you, O husbands, are to give your life in aiding your bride in her sanctification. For that is what Christ has done for the church. You see, the very reason that the church needs sanctification is because she is an adulterer. God's people have been adulterers from the very beginning, right from the garden when Adam sinned. See, you and I are adulterers. Listen to the words of Jeremiah as God speaks through him to Israel. Jeremiah chapter 3, verses 6 through 9. The Lord said to me in the days of King Josiah, Have you seen what she did, the faithless one Israel? How she went up on every high hill and under every green tree, and there played the whore? And I thought, after she has done all this, she will return to me. But she did not return. And her treacherous sister Judah saw it. Because she took her whoredom lightly, she polluted the land, committing adultery with stone and tree. Beloved Israel committed adultery against God, her husband, by turning to stone and tree. That is, by turning to false idols. And listen, every sin we commit is a sin of idolatry. We may not bow down to wood and stone today, or at least that might not be the predominant form of idolatry in our culture today. But every sin is a form of idolatry. It is saying, God, I don't like your law. I want another's law. Ultimately, it is saying, I want to be a law unto myself. I am my own God. And we have all 
played the whore before our husband, God. But listen, beloved, to the rest of that passage in Jeremiah. Yahweh continues and says to Jeremiah, Go and proclaim these words to the north and say, Return, faithless Israel, declares the Lord. I will not look on you in anger, for I am a merciful God, declares the Lord. I will not be angry forever. Only acknowledge your guilt that you rebelled against the Lord your God and scattered your favors among foreigners under every green tree, and that you have not obeyed my voice, declares the Lord. Return, O faithless children, declares the Lord, for I am your master. I will take you one from a city and two from a family, and I will bring you to Zion. No matter how unfaithful God's people have been. No matter how many times we have played the whore, and notice how interchangeable Jeremiah uses the words adultery and whoredom. You see, no matter how many times we prostitute ourselves out, our God always remains faithful to His covenant people. Even more, He redeems us from our harlotry much like the woman we saw in Luke this morning. And he accomplished that by his work on the cross. The Old Testament law in Deuteronomy chapter 22, verse 22, called for death in the case of adultery. It reads, If a man is found lying with the wife of another man, both of them shall die. The man who lay with the woman and the woman. So you shall purge the evil from Israel. Church, we deserve death because of our adulterous evil. But Christ died in our stead so that he might purge the evil from us. As we read in Ephesians chapter 5, he gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. We have been adulterous, we have turned from God. We are all sinners. And just like this example of Israel and Jeremiah, the Lord continues to call us to Him. He continuously brings us back to Him and He calls us to repent. You see, even as we deal with ongoing struggles in our lives, perhaps with this sin or with many others in which we have committed adultery against our God, He continually sanctifies us by His Word. How great is our redeeming God. What grace that we do not deserve. Our idolatry 
has stained us, but his precious blood washed us clean. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your spirit who is sanctifying us. And Lord, we know that uh, this, this sin, this particular commandment, is, is so difficult in the culture that we live in today for us to keep. And, and Lord, I know that many struggle very, very much with this sin. And sometimes we struggle so much with it that we, we wonder if we're Christian at all. Or, or maybe we do with other sins. But Lord, we know that your spirit is sanctifying us and that there is hope in you. And if we have to repent of it a thousand times, let us repent a thousand more. And I pray that uh, we would recognize with whatever struggle we deal with that we would know that you are, are present with us and that we have a comforter and one who will help us in time of need. May we rely upon your spirit and may we strive to do away with these sins. But Lord, let us also rest in your grace. The grace that we have in Jesus Christ. And we pray this in his name. Amen. Let us respond.